you said, but clearly you all know who you're voting for. Um, this is an event that's uh, sponsored by Penn American Center. I'm Luann Walther. I'm an editor and a longtime member of Penn, and I'll be introducing the four panelists tonight. We're here tonight to talk about visions of the city in fiction, specifically in the novels of Maureen Howard, Richard Price, Doris Jean Austin, and Jonathan Franzen. Each of these writers has explored the fictional possibilities of a particular city in his or her novel, and each suggests some interesting questions about urban life and about the state of the American novel today. Before I introduce them, I'd like to make one or two introductory remarks. We all feel that our cities are in crisis today, and of course they are. But it may be important to remember that for a long time, many writers have felt a certain despair about cities. Rousseau, cities are the abyss of the human species. Tennyson's Maud, I loathe the squares and streets and the faces that one meets. Melville's Pierre, Never yet have I entered the city by night, but somehow it made me feel both bitter and sad. Rupert Birkin in Women in Love, I always feel doomed when the train is running into London. Of course, there are exceptions. Uh, the Paris, uh, for example, of Henry James, the Ambassadors, is a glittering vision of high civilization, an American dream of the European city of beauty, Walt Whitman's New York is a swaggering, lively, wonderfully democratic new world city of energy and comradeliness. But mainly, I think the tradition is fairly negative. Yet here we all are in this particular city, along with most Americans, 80% of whom now live in or near cities. And for a great many of us, this is an active choice. We would live nowhere else. Even for those who cannot choose, there seems little alternative. We can't go back to the pastoral life. They don't need us anymore on the farm, even if we wanted to go. So what can our novelists tell us about the city? And what, in turn, does the city do to their novels? These are the two fundamental questions that we hope to explore tonight, uh, and an ancillary one. Does writing about the city force a writer to be more ambitious? multi-layered, more concerned with large ideas about society in the way that the great 18th and 19th century novelists like Smollett, Defoe, Fielding, Dickens, Dostoevsky, Balzac, all seem to be bigger novelists for having used as a canvas the great cities of their time. I have to say that reading the f work of these four people, I was struck by how very distant all of them are from those small, wistful, self-conscious, and self-absorbed American novels we so often see, and it makes me feel tremendously heartened to realize that so much good, big fiction is being written in the form that Edmund Wilson once called the novel of the social group. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to the four panelists. Maureen Howard, uh, her five previous novels are Not a Word About Nightingales, Bridgeport Bus, Before My Time, Grace Abounding and Expensive Habits. Her nonfiction memoir, Facts of Life, received the National Book Critics Circle Award in 1978. And her new novel, Natural History, which was the front page review in the Times Book Review yesterday, 
is set in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where she was born and raised. And she's down on my left. Richard Price on my right. Uh, Richard Price was born and raised in the Bronx, and his first novel, The Wanderers, was published when he was 24 years old. It was followed by Blood Brothers, Ladies' Man, The Breaks, after which came several screenplays, including The Color of Money, Sea of Love, and Night in the City. And his novel, Clockers, was published last June and is set in Jersey City, New Jersey. It's Richard. Doris Jean Austin uh, uh, was originally from uh, Mobile, Alabama. She now lives in New York and has for the past four years taught in the writing program at uh, Columbia University where she's a Columbia Fellow. She's the editor of the forthcoming fiction anthology, Streetlights, Illuminating Tales of the Urban Black Experience. And her first novel, After the Garden, was published in 1987 and is also set in Jersey City, New Jersey. Doris Jean. And Jonathan Franzen on my left. Jonathan's uh, new novel, Strong Motion, was published last January and is set in Boston. It was his second novel. His literary debut was The 27th City, published when he was 29, and set in St. Louis, Missouri, where he grew up. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask each of you one question, and then uh, after you've answered those, we'll uh, flow into one another somehow here. Uh, Maureen Howard. A uh, number of early readers of Natural History have said that in Natural History you've made Bridgeport your Dublin. Could you talk about that and about your literary predecessors in general? Were you influenced by Joyce or by anybody else? And what, in short, is the literary tradition you're dealing with when you write as an American writer about place? Um. I think we should probably put the Joyce reference aside. It's pretty heavy to carry. Um, uh, I, um, I think it's fun. I'm pleased and all that. But gosh, um, uh, uh, I'm Irish. I'll say that. And, uh, and the, um, the language of the Irish, though I am distant in my heritage, really, my people came for the railroads um, and earlier the potato famine came for the, from the potato famine, but somehow I think the language is still in my ear, has been passed down generation to generation. Um, the, um, when I think of city novels, I suppose I think, first of all, of Dickens, uh, which is prob was probably the largest influence, but the range is, Enormous. Uh, I would say uh, the surrealist novel of novelist André Breton and uh, Baudelaire's Paris Spleen probably have had as much influence on me in thinking and writing about my nice hometown, my good hometown of Bridgeport, as um, Dickens has. Um, I would like to, since Luann suggests it, talk a bit about the uh, tradition of the city novel and remark that the first word of Bleak House, perhaps the best love of, loved of Dickens' complex and wondrous city novels, is London. 
The place name sits on the page before the opening sentence of the great sprawling story, before we are shown the mud, the fog, the rain of 19th century soot, London. It is an obfuscated landscape with images prehistoric and apocalyptic, an urbanscape rich with danger, poverty, and possibility, fashion, art and artifice, innocence and corruption, chance, chance encounters. Dickens' London, with its friction and ferment of life, lends itself absolutely to social observation and concerns of class. Mythic as London must be to contain the themes of Bleak House, it is, Bleak House, it is specifically Dickens' city. The topicality of chancery and particular urban slums have been traced by scholars and they can be located on the map, a ma the map that was. But it is really Dickens' London, so that though, just as <coughs> Joyce's Dublin, and maybe I know that I have attempted this in my Bridgeport, Joyce's Dublin is exact. We know that he wrote from Zurich and Paris to his brother, to his aunt, asking for the actual names of shops, for the slogans on bus, on streetcars, and so forth, so that it would be real. And I think that the city novelist is beholden to reality. And yet, I feel that writing of cities, one goes, one must go beyond reality. Um, and I think most of us at at, at this table have. Um, the, um, the facts of the, city, the cities themselves are absolutely overwhelming, both the appalling facts and the ones that entertain us constantly. Um, we used to speak of realism. It seems a very old-fashioned word given the parlance of uh, theory these days. But uh, Dreiser, <coughs> who we would speak of perhaps as a realist, knew that the city contained um, a lot of farce and melodrama, and that the ultimate contrast of rich and poor, community and solitude, the unprovincial stage, uh, was the one on which Sister Carrie would have to play out her fate. As a novelist, the boy from Indiana apprehended the challenge of raw American cities, and there I think there is a difference between the American writer, perhaps, and the European writer, that we have thought and still think of our cities as raw, unformed, changing, in flux. Um, and Dreiser, uh, uh, Henry James, uh, uh, the Henry James, New York, the Philadelphia, of John Edgar Wideman, um, the, um, uh, the various cities of Allison's Harlem, the various cities that we think of in fiction um, are all, when they are successful, equal to character in the novel. Um, and one of the things that I feel very strongly about is that the city, when it is well written about, is never just backdrop. It's never just as my failed 
or a second-rate movie actor in <coughs> natural history says, it is never just mise-en-scene stuff. It has to really be rendered and be there and play its part. Um, Bridgeport is my city, my hometown. During the writing of natural history, it became the first city in America to attempt to declare bankruptcy. Um, I couldn't have conceived that. I go to the city often, though I live in exile in New York. I drive the streets, I read the post. My connection to the city is passionate and acquisitive. I want to know not only what happened there, but what is happening. I want to know, I suppose I must admit, since I am, I, I want to know as a, an exile and as a writer, the entire life of P.T. Barnum, our grand city father, Papa of Pop, our architectural follies and triumphs, the failed socialism of our socialist mayor, all those seductive stories of the past, what happened. But the past really can't hold us completely. I want to know what is happening now. I want to know the drive-by shootings in Father Panic Village. Father Panic is a wonderful name. I couldn't have conceived it. And I want to know the extraordinary infant mortality rate of that village, which is set in the east side in a model city, in P.T. Barnum's model city. It is one of the most notorious um, housing projects in America. <coughs> I am interested that Luann mentions lost uh, the, the the pastoral, because I feel that I often think of Gertrude Stein's slap in the face of Oakland, there, there is no there there. Well, there's enormous amounts of there for me in my city, almost too much to handle. And so I have to understand that Bridgeport is my city, and yet it is also a city like many other American cities that have been used up and discarded, trashed by politicians and corruption, had its great day that its history includes enormous amounts of American history, the City Beautiful movement, the Garden City movement, the Great Depression, the enormous prosperity uh, of the war years, it was a great ammunition uh, arsenal, and so forth. Uh, I'd like to end my little talk about American cities, or my opening remarks, by saying that um, the socialist may may mayor of Bridgeport, Jasper McLevy, became a socialist, it is said, by reading a book. Uh, we are only novelists, we're not politicians, so we have competition tonight uh, on the tube. People who, I bet, though we're not listening or watching, probably don't mention our cities much tonight. Um, I would like to say that reading, looking backward, the Millennium Novel of 1888, the great bestseller of Edward Bellamy, is how Jasper McLevy became a socialist as many other Americans did by reading a novel, not reading Marx. Uh, and in that 
novel, which is futuristic, the uh, heroine says, but why did you put to the, to the man who has woken up in the future, but why did you put up with such a shockingly inconvenient arrangement? The heroine asks of her lover in the futuristic city, why when you saw its faults so plainly? And he says, it is like all our social arrangements. He replied, you can see their faults scarcely more plainly than we did, but we saw no remedy for them. And uh, thank you for coming tonight. I do not in any way think that novels can be read as political texts, but they're there for us. The novels of, the novel of Richard Price, of Doris Jean Austen, of Jonathan Franzen, uh, like great Barnum-esque shows for our pleasure and edification. For many years, I've been conscious of the fact that Nick Carraway's final words at the end of Gatsby are spoken directly across from my Bridgeport, where the light of our ferry boat, which I read as a hopeful light, uh, is seen by him, a flickering light, just before the final lost pastoral vision of the old island revealed that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes a fresh new green breast of the world. Thank you, <clears throat> Maureen. I have, a, I have a question for Richard Price. Um, almost every reviewer of Clockers has uh, called your book a Balzacian chronicle of life as it's really lived, in this case in an urban culture of drugs, cops, narcos, junkies, and so forth. They've commented on your documentary realism, on the many nuances of street vocabulary that you've captured, and on characters so real that they can't be ignored. So my question to you is about process. How did you come to know these characters? What kind of research did you do to write clockers? And did that notorious essay Tom Wolfe wrote for Harper's in which he took many American fiction writers to task for not doing their research, uh, did that essay have any effect on you? Um, well, I never read the essay, but you know, I've heard enough about it and I've been brought up <clears throat> as a shining example of what he was talking about enough. Um, but, I mean, you know, like, you know, f fiction is, you know, it could be anything. I mean, who, what, I mean, the city can be written about like the way I do it, which is very literal, or you can do it like Paul Auster does it, which is kind of sort of cryptic and metaphorical, and it's all legitimate. Who, I mean, whose city? Woody Allen's city, um, Richard Wright's city, um, uh, I don't know who else is around. Uh, I have way I have it. Damon Runyon. Who else I got here? Uh, the, you know, it, it's just you know, it's just like what city at what level? What are you trying to approach? How are you trying to use the notion of city? Is it city as nostalgia? Is it city as metaphor? Is it city as like scathing social realism indictment of c existing conditions? Uh, you know, um, it, you know, it's a big open thing and. <clears throat> I don't know what to say for myself. I mean, I sort of threw myself into clockers. I mean, sometimes I find, especially you know, when dealing with younger writers, and I sort of found myself also at this impasse with my own work, is that you know, after a while, you know, you you can go blind staring at your own navel, 
you know, and your life gets to the point, like, what happened to me since I wrote my last book that I can write about? You know, and, you know, so for some people that's never a problem, but I just don't have um, that type of imagination to keep sort of tapping my own experience. Uh, and I found myself just dried up as a novelist, and I went to Hollywood, didn't literally go to Hollywood, but I wrote scripts for eight years. And in the course of uh, writing movies, I found myself hanging out with police in, in Jersey City, and there comes a time in every writer's life when they run with police for some piece of journalism or something. And it's, it's like crack, hanging out with police. You might never come back. Because, you know, what you see, it, you know, and it has nothing to do with even liking policemen. I mean, it's just got to, it's like seeing the world through cop's eyes. All of a sudden, you see human behavior in such extremists on a daily, nightly basis. And they all take it for granted, you know, at some point. But for you, you've, you're a virgin, and it, it's, um, I just got addicted to what you can see when you're running with cops. And then at some point, I decided enough with the police, I want to hang out with the police. You know, so, uh, you know, sort of the reverse angle. Um, and I just found myself for, for three years, uh, it, it, I felt like, you know, one of those was rock, rock maniacs that sort of jump off the stage and assume that everybody's going to catch them and pass them around. And that's what happened in Jersey City. I went from, like, cops to drug dealers to families to methadone clinic workers to, to drug addicts to lawyers. And I... I um, I, I needed to lose myself in order to find myself as a writer. I just could not write about, you know, um, being me, as literally as me, and you know, all the mystery and the magic of meanness. You know, I mean, I, it, it just got that. I mean, my therapy is barely of interest to me, let alone, you know, why should I be? Why should I like make anybody else suffer through it? You know, and I, you know, but I, I found myself as a writer. And what happens is, and I just felt like I, um, I spent years just hanging out and taking notes, and I became sort of addicted to take just being in the field. I mean, it, it, Jimmy Breslin said of Damon Runyon, he did what all good journalists do, he hung out. You know, and there's an art to hanging out, um, but there's also an art to knowing when the hanging out is over. And I, I didn't get a handle on that, and I, <laughs> and I, I wound up with like 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 uh, like an autistic stack of uh, notebooks on overheard dialogue and everything. I just tried, just trying to like to drink the ocean, like one of the five Chinese brothers in that children's book. And I, my my editor had to literally talk me in from the field, you know, and take me to a nice lunch and say, well, what what's what's your first sentence? <laughs> and I'd say, no, 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 I can't write yet because I don't know anything about the prison system. You know, because I, mean, I know about the school system, but now, but I mean, what, if you don't know the prison system, what does the school system mean? Because they're all heading to prison, you know? And then, you know, then I have to know about the parole system, and you know? And I, I just got, I, I was starting to drown in, in news, you know, what was for me news. And the worst part was taking this huge stack of notebooks and feelings and snatches of conversation overheard from a period of four years and turning it into art because just to know that something exists does not make it art. I mean, to, you know, to be a minority member or to be uh, a sexual outlaw or um, to be any kind of anything unique compared to the mainstream is not an art form unto itself. It's you've got to take the experience 
and then that's just your springboard and that's when imagination comes into play and that convert you know you have to convert reality into art but you know um, at some point you can just get so hung up on getting reality which is madness I mean there is no reality there's no like ding um, you got it you know uh, I remember Nick Pileggi uh, who's doing a book on casinos right now and I mean the institution of casinos in America which is you know, it's a big job, and um, he's you know spent years talking to you know you know the hoods and you know the you know the the chambers of commerce and you know and the, and the degenerate gamblers and this and that and the other. And I was wondering, my God, when do you stop? Like I'm asking him, like I'm asking myself. And he said to me, Well, the time you stop is when you ask a person a question, and before they answer, you're sort of mouthing the answer with them. Because what that means is at this point, you're not asking questions to learn anything. You're asking questions to get confirmation that you know your stuff. And at that point, you stop. And, um, well, I forgot the first part. Well, the Tom Wolf thing. Um, the, the, you know, so, um, you know, I just, I got lost, at, you know, trying to find myself. I, I just embraced the fabric of, of lives not my own and tried to use my powers of empathy to sort of, um, you know, weasel my way in there. Um, the, the Tom Wolfe uh, essay, which I think even Tom Wolfe was sort of being tongue-in-cheek about, is just trying to get himself a little um, hoopla going. You know, the whole thing is like, you know, everything is, you know, social realism is the only thing that's responsible now, and, you know, all these other writers are, you know, just like sort of terminal self-indulgence cases. I mean, I don't even think he meant that seriously, and you know. But um, I, I just, uh, that didn't do anything for me, but reading uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, which I kind of took like a satirical, it wasn't even, I didn't even take it as satirical literature, I took it more like almost like a satir like those 19th century drawings by Spy and Cruikshank, and people like that who did these caricatures of British lawyers. And I mean, he was just doing this satirical high and low panoramic sweep. And when I read that, I was going nuts because I was deep into my woe is me for being a screenwriter stage, and when I read the book, I was very taken with the with the uh, panoramic ambition of it. And although satire is is, is not my 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 meat, um, I just felt like he was taking on the city, and I wanted to take on the city. I mean, there was no value judgment whether this is a good or a bad book, or you know. But instead of going high and low, I just wanted to go low and wide. You know, just stay on the stay in the trenches and go wide and get all the trench fighters. Um, you know, but I didn't even go as far as to give you know a policeman a commanding officer or a drug dealer a supplier. I mean, just kept it right on a, right on the, everybody who wears sneakers is in the is in the book. That's what I have to say. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Doris Jean, uh, After the Garden is also set in Jersey City, but it's a very different city from the one that we see in Clockers. It's set in the past, starting in 1939. Uh, in the book, we see a, a rich world of women, uh, particularly Rosalie, the um, very um, strong grandmother. We see a strong black church. We see a candy store that just sells candy. Um, we see people in houses with nice, warm, hissing radiators and parlors and porches. It's not a nostalgic book by any means, but it's certainly um, one that carries more hope. Um, what I wanted to ask you is, could you talk about your Jersey City in relation to the one that has now evolved and that we see in Clockers, and um, 
also perhaps tell us uh, something about the stories you're collecting now for your Streetlights anthology, um, what you're finding among other writers who are coming from a thoroughly black perspective and who are writing about the city. Thank you. I'm being right now overwhelmed with submissions from all over the country for a streetlight that I'm for an anthology that I'm co-editing for a Viking called Streetlights, Illuminating Tales of the Urban Black Experience. And some of them are fabulous. And it reminds me of the little Johnny in Sunday school and painting his picture. And the teacher says, what are you drawing, Johnny? And Johnny said, I'm drawing a picture of God. The teacher says, but no one knows what God looks like. Johnny said, they will when I finish this picture. <laughs> That's what I believe writers take on when we are going to write about our cities. And the views that we're getting, they are so, they're so various and they're so wide. And they come from every theme and every voice imaginable. I started out, um, Richard and I were talking before we came up on stage, I started out as a news writer at NBC and there wasn't enough freedom. So I quit because I thought that in a couple of months I could finish a novel and sell it. <laughs> well, um, it's still the bravest thing I've ever done in my life. I did eventually write the novel. Um, the Bonfire of the Vanities and, uh, and Clockers and the books of the city today, so accelerated, so much larger than they were in 1939 when Ah, which is the setting for my book After the Garden, and it's a coming of age novel. And it's set in Jersey City, in the same city that Rich is writing about. And later on, I married a man who would be a Jersey City policeman. Later on, I divorced him. He's still in Jersey City on the Jersey City police force. <laughs> so it's, um, I don't know. I, I was always headed for New York. I believe that you asked a question earlier about how does, how does the city affect the writer? Mm -hmm. I think that's a bit like the chicken and the egg, because there's a certain kind of writer who's going to take on the cities. Uh, there's a certain kind of writer who, for whom the suburbs or are nauseating, for whom the silence. I remember I was one, very fortunate once to go to Peterborough, New Hampshire, to McDowell Colony, and it took me three weeks to get accustomed to the silence. And I couldn't write, and I couldn't anything, and the woods scared me to death because things <laughs> moved in them and there were no lights. Now, it's true, after about eight or nine weeks there, I could walk through the woods and everything was fine. But there is a city sensibility. There is a need to look at the city. I stopped to have dinner tonight in a place called the Saloon, the Village Saloon, and the waitress, behind, the waitress was waiting on a table behind me, and she said to these two young men, would you like for me to rub your thighs? <laughs> and I wrote it down. I couldn't believe she said that. <laughs> they probably ordered thighs. <laughs> they probably ordered thighs. <laughs> the, um, there are things. Um, it's so easy to get off. For me, it's so easy to get on overload in the city. Um, I'm that kind of writer that has five projects going at one time. I just gave my agent two novel scripts that are about cities, again, 
Um, and New York is the setting. Um, trying to write this city is something we've been taking on every single decade of publishing. Um, I don't know how many of you may have read Hubert Selby Jr.'s um, Last Exit to Brooklyn, which I couldn't personally handle, but Requiem for a Dream, the book after that, now I could handle that. That was a marvelous um, look at, and I, when I think of the writer as social scientist, I think of us as trying to say, look what you're doing, and if we continue doing this, this is what may happen. Or to paint the darkness just because you can't help but paint light also by its very omission, no matter how low or how high you go, you're painting the whole thing because what's absent is also on the page. Um, I have a need to, to read just the opening of a colleague of mine, a book that um, was published by Phyllis Raphael. Um, she's a colleague of mine up at Columbia. And she wrote, because we talk about the views of the city. I am not afraid in the streets of New York. I am terrified in Brooklyn Heights with all those trees and all those cars parked on both sides of the street. Because peop and there's no people there after 6 o'clock. And there's nothing open. And I don't like it at all. I like New York. Um, <laughs> the title of this story is, This Story is for Muggers. This is a story addressed to the muggers, rapists, killers, and criminals of the city of New York. I used to be a liberal, a registered West Side Reformed Democrat, a Barnard graduate in whose family no one has voted Republican in 40 years. Now I am an irrational demagogue, a bigot, and a racist. I am running for office, and the first thing I am going to do when I am elected is get rid of all of you. I have a plan for doing this. I am going to round you all up in trucks and ship you off to an island in the middle of the Atlantic. There you can stay and there you can rot. The people of this city had a tough time finding me. It isn't easy to find a demagogue on the west side of Manhattan. Even people who actually are demagogues, racists, and bigots are afraid to admit it because they would be socially ostracized by their liberal friends. Not me. I am honest, open, and above board. I am what I am, and I'm going to do what I said. Um, the story goes on, but the views of the city are so numerous that I don't think that there's any end to these dialogues. I don't think that we, we need to worry about running out of material. The Jersey City that I wrote about, a, a young girl coming of age, I thought I wrote because I was brilliant. <laughs> I thought that I invented every bit of it. She happened to live with her grandmother, and she came from a home where there were three generations, and she, her family was originally from the South. And oh, it was just a wonderful feat. And when I finished it, I read it, and I saw my mother and my grandmother. And I mean, it was as if I was blindly recapturing a subliminal dream and picture, because I had made composites, surely. But the fact is, I did recognize all of those people once I'd finished writing it, once um, I began editing it. So it is true that we're, we don't necessarily have the authority to write about a place because we are from the place. I research New York when I write about New York, I, I'm, which I'm doing now. I research Montgomery County, Alabama, which is the setting of my next book. 
And it is not only in the large historical sense. You are, you're researching a social reality. I once had a man unzip his pants to pee in the woods and found out that he couldn't because they hadn't invented zippers yet. There are those kinds of things that writers <laughs> will stumble <laughs> upon. Research is a place that can, too, take you so far away from your original destination that somewhere, I believe you alluded to this, somewhere you have to say stop. Because research is a very addictive trail in itself. I know that I, when I get tired of researching 1888, which is the setting of my second novel, Heirs and Orphans, then I'm free to go and research the Long Island Railroad and its history for the cast of characters that I have in the third novel, which I'm doing at the same time because I'm so smart, I'll probably never finish both <laughs> of them. <laughs> but nevertheless, I've given my agent these, um, these stories. What I find about the city is the life and, and the volume, even in a town like Jersey City in 1939, and I drew mostly upon memory and nostalgia to even start my research. I was looking at the world that held the United States, that held New Jersey, that held Jersey City, and you come down and you find out where was the world and where was my state and what were the politics and what were the fashions. And what was a young girl likely to be thinking at this time when women's roles were so well and securely defined? Elzina Tompkins, where she put in Jersey City today, could not survive. Mm. She simply could not. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Jonathan. Uh, your first book, The 27th City, starts with an actual roadmap of the real St. Louis. Then it quickly uh, moves into a wildly imaginative realm in which a very fascinating and utterly ruthless woman police chief from Bombay slowly takes control of the entire city. Your St. Louis is as corrupt as any modern-day city, but you've chosen not to portray its deterioration through documentary realism, but by taking the reader into a completely imaginary realm. And you've taken a similar approach to Boston in strong motion. Could you talk about that choice and tell us whether either city recognized itself in your very imaginative portrayals? And I guess you should also explain um, your title. Uh, what makes St. Louis the 27th city? Well, I'll try to get to that last point last. Um, let's see. Why I took the approach I did, which is not a documentary realist approach, I think sometimes um, I hate doing research. Uh, I often reach a point when I am doing research when I just don't want to know anymore because I find that I develop a responsibility to what I'm finding out about uh, that I don't want to have because I want to have my only responsibility be to the fiction itself. Um, and uh, I think <coughs> I, I would just go crazy if I tried to do what Richard did with Jersey City, I think it's a personality difference, but um, I would want to use every quote in all of those notebooks, and I would never finish a book because it would be too long. <coughs> I grew up in the suburbs, uh, not in the city, and uh, the suburbs are a very boring place. Um, I think of, of cities being sort of like the unhappy families in the famous Tolstoy quote, 
which is uh, they're all unhappy in their own way. And I know that there is unhappiness in the suburbs, but I think that all, all suburbs are alike. All suburbs have the same history. They all developed because there was already a city there. Cities are much more like people. They all have individual histories. They're there for bizarre and, and sort of uh, arbitrary reasons, which invariably are, are more interesting than the fact that, well, this place happened to be 25 minutes from Chicago, uh, which is about all you can say for <coughs> the origin of most suburbs. Um, <coughs> and so I think that, that actually cities are, are naturally uh, or should naturally be of more interest to writers maybe than, than suburbs uh, are. I, uh, something about suburbs is that they're set up really to try to eliminate or minimize uh, most of what fiction writers find interesting. Uh, they're, they're, they're there to try to take the edge off things. They're there to try to you know, calm people and homogenize people and create, you know, if not happiness, then, uh, I don't know, uh, complacency. And um, again, I don't want to be too hard on them, but I do think that <laughs> if you are trying to write about where you grew up and you grew up in the suburbs and you're not interested in writing about consumerism uh, or about um, good grief, I guess, you know, the the not very interesting problems that all families have, uh, then you're stuck. And that was the position I found myself in when I was uh, casting about for among the ideas I'd had to write about when I was trying to write a first novel. And that's why I was attracted to the one I had had about a group of people coming from the third world and um, basically setting up um, you know, surveillance on, on ordinary suburban families and, and tailing them in their, you know, rented sabers and stuff like that. And uh, just because, you know, anything to combat the basic boringness of the suburban existence. Um, and it, it happened actually then to go beyond that into uh, their, these Indians who, by the way, I find to be not, well, they are ruthless, but they're, they're sort of my heroes. Um, they're, they're the people I identified most strongly with. They were people who just found themselves in, they, they thought that the suburbs were a totally alien, bizarre place, uh, unlike their, their experience, and, and somehow that's the position in which I found myself. Anyway, the, their, their modus operandi for uh, taking over St. Louis turned out to be uh, to try to put together the decayed, emptied city and the prosperous, infinitely expanding suburbs all around it. And uh, that inevitably, almost unwillingly, led me into the city and trying to find out how, what made cities work, um, for which I guess my principal research, research was just listening to the radio as I grew up. Um, but what, let's see, you asked me about um, the- What makes it the 27th? Well, what makes it the 27th? Well, the response, first of all, the response to uh, the response of the city to to, to the work. Um, in the case of the 27th city, um, I was writing about a place, something about Midwestern cities, uh, and I, I have to point out that I'm the, I sort of have like the rest of the country covered here. Uh, <coughs> that is, I'm not writing about New York, but rather about uh, further away places. And something, a generalization I can make about Midwestern cities is that they are very ambitious, uh, and they've, all of them feel 
like they have a special destiny. Um, even the little ones feel, you know, they've named themselves things like Thebes and Sparta and, uh, you know, Centerville. And they all think that, uh, that they have some special destiny that, 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 you know, that particular confluence of creeks and the Sioux Line Railroad is going to produce, you know, the next New York. And uh, this is, there's, there's sort of a heartbreaking innocence as well to that ambition and to that conviction of specialness. And literarily, there was also a, a great attraction in writing about a city as a character that felt like, you know, I think we all do, you know, when you're in bed, you say, like, everybody else is fairly important, but I'm really important. And that's exactly how most Midwestern cities uh, feel. Uh, so that, <clears throat> and that, 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 that combination of innocence and ambition, I think, then creates, uh, um, creates the circumstances for one to be terribly corrupted. Uh, I, I, I won't try to explain that connection immediately, but I th that, that, that is what happens to St. Louis in the course of my book. And I think that's to a great extent what, what I've seen happen to our country, if, you know, and maybe it's been happening for 200 years, of, of um, you're just, if, you, if you have a combination of, uh, of just intense desire to be number one and also a real inexperience with really evil things, um, and I think this country has both of them, and Midwestern cities have both of them, then you're wide open to be, uh, to be twisted about by people from older uh, or, or subtler cultures. Um, in any case, I, I did portray uh, St. Louis being corrupted, and uh, corrupted largely at the hands of, of an enthusiastic media. Um, and in the course of the book, the media gets more and more excited about what's happening to St. Louis, but the people themselves pay less and less attention to it because they're all out in the suburbs and uh, watching movies and watching television and not really caring about what goes on in the city and in the public life in general. And interestingly, this was, this was mirrored in the reaction of, of the city, which I'd expected to be huge and thunderous, uh, to my book, which was the media were all very interested in St. Louis. They said, gosh, you know, one of our own has made good and, and uh, um, this might bring some national attention to our very special place. And uh, <clears throat> the, the city, therefore, could be said to have really responded to the book, and yet, uh, personally, I got three letters. One of them was from three letters, in t and, and that's all I ever got on the topic of the book from St. Louisans, um, which might be three more than, you know, I deserve. But, <laughs> Uh, one of them was from a, a, a prep school boy uh, who was, whose family was Indian and who uh, basically wrote to assure me that his family was not conspiring to take over the city of St. Louis. Um, and to say that he'd liked the book, which I was actually very pleased with. Um, another was from a consultant to management who, who was basically concerned with the typos in the book. Uh, <laughs> and. Finally, there was uh, a letter from uh, some, some, actually one of the people in the general counsel's office at Ralston Purina, to whom we had written to get permission to use the chicken of the sea jingle. And he wrote back to say we could use it in the manner proposed. And uh, went on to say that apparently the author must not know very much about 
St. Louis, because although according to the population figures, it might be the 27th largest city in the country, its uh, vibrant cultural life and its thriving metropolitan area placed it very close to the top of American cities, and it was a wonderful place to live, and he was very sorry that national attention of an unfavorable sort was being brought to bear. Um, so basically, uh, I, I, my feeling is, and I, I wonder, I, I think Maureen might also, I, I'd be interested to hear if this has also been her experience, is that if you get the city uh, more or less as it is, then it will respond almost in a way that the book would allow you to predict it to respond. Uh, I don't know if that has yeah, been your experience. Yeah, uh, I, I know what you mean. Um, the, the, um, the city of Bridgeport has been very, very kind to me. And I've had to make it very clear, though, upon occasion, that it's the characters in my book, not me, <laughs> that, ha that, that are mouthing the complaints at times. Uh, and uh, I have done the kind of, uh, you know, yes, I do research. I, I did a lot of hanging out in places in Bridgeport, places where I was told repeatedly not to go to. I was told not to drive. To, to Father Panic Village ever, 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 or drive around it. Um, and I, because I felt it was necessary to do all that. On the other hand, it's interesting how the people in my city of Bridgeport want, want to correct me if, I, if anything is exactly wrong. And so I have to keep saying, it's fiction, it's fiction, it's fiction, please. And then, they really have been most gracious, really, really very nice about it, and feel, I guess, and I feel this as a, as a burden, as you must have when uh, people in St. Louis seem to feel, oh, it's going to be something grand for our city, and you, 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 you feel that you would like to be able to give back a hell of a lot to a city that you love that much. But you can't quite explain an attitude which is a little bit, which is kind of, uh, well, ironic. ironic, yeah, ironic, but even impassioned and, and troubled. And, and I feel like the cry at the end of actually Baudelaire's Paris Spleen, which goes something like, oh, you infernal city that I love. <laughs> so uh, that that's something that I think um, the love-hate um, dependency upon the material of that city is something that may not, to the people who live there every day, the good people who survive in that place, uh, God knows I don't want to take that from them by any hijinks of mine. Uh, I'm interested in this uh, idea that these cities themselves have a reaction to you. What, um, have you heard from anybody, Richard? Yeah, well, all the cops that I that I wrote about wound up being investigated by Internal Affairs, <laughs> <laughs> but they they didn't give a shit because they were just so uh, happy to be in a book that and they couldn't prove anything because this is the first time that you know Jer corrupt Jersey City had to debate the concept of fiction versus fact. I mean, you know, like this is the only way that art gets involved in discussions in Jersey City. Can you sue this? Uh, can you bring? Can you get this cop in trouble because this writer said this? And, you know, and it was just sort of like the Valley of the Dolls for Jersey City. 
And, you know, I just found that everybody who read the book, I mean, I gave it to all the drug dealers for some mysterious reason. Not one of them got through the book. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> but, yeah, everybody uh, read the book, no matter what I said about them. And I didn't want to betray anybody. I didn't want to, you know, I was totally honest with people what I was doing. I mean, basically, you know, what you're saying to people is, um, I, I, I want to spend some time with you and write about how somebody like you makes it through 24 hours, and everybody's immediate reaction to that request is, oh man, somebody should write a book. You know, I said, well, if you were listening to what I just said, you know. <laughs> and then they would say, well, look at me, and they go, well, how do you like your coffee? Or get in the car, something like this. So, I mean, everybody, I mean, you know, because people's, every, everybody's life is so boring to themselves and so routine. And when you have somebody around that's asking you the most obvious questions, all of a sudden you find yourself in a situation in which you're, you have to think about why you do the things you do that you just do by uh, rote. And all of a sudden your own life becomes more interesting to you. And um, so, yeah, so everybody, uh, you know, who, who read it uh, really liked it. Um, simply, and it's not, you know, and, you know, you know, Jersey City's not like, you know, like this, you know, bustly kind of um, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge kind of Midwestern uh, city, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a decrepit old whore, you know, and, um, but, you know, yeah, the only people that got pissed off were, you know, the people that were looking for the people in the book to screw and couldn't because it was fiction. You know, but everybody, you know, even notoriety is free publicity, you know. Mm -hmm. so. Are any of them auditioning for the movie? Oh, yeah, every one of them. I, yeah, I had uh, with this one cop, uh, um, he's got a second career now. He even bought a new home in Jersey City. Right. <laughs> yeah. First, Jean, did you have reactions from family? Oh, I've, I've gotten a lot of reactions from Jersey City, but I think the work itself provokes a certain type of uh, response, and since I was writing a family drama, um, and all conflict was between the family, uh, I've gotten a lot of response from inhabitants of Jersey City, because Jersey City is not a kind of mecca place. I mean, no, everybody wasn't writing about Jersey City. Uh, my book came out in 87 in hardcover, and what happened was I was at a party in New York and this young man, who's a writer, who's <laughs> since put out a book, came into the party and said, where's Doris Jane Austen? Because he said he never expected anybody in the world to write a book about Jersey City and to mention the Margaret Hague, where he was born, the maternity hospital in Jersey City. And um, it's, it is interesting because I also get cursing out. There was a death in the book and I was repeatedly accused of killing the man. And um, as Maureen was saying, I had to mm. explain that this, um, this happened to these characters and I wasn't there, I wasn't even born then. Uh, I didn't do it. Mm. But there, there was, was a violent death and, um, and I, I even had a friend of mine who's an editor, um, who's a, a very powerful editor, turn around, there were a bunch of us in her car and say, so I want to know why you killed him. I said, Jesus. I said, don't you think? She, there was no foreshadowing. There was no, like I had a response. I said, yeah, but death doesn't send telegrams now, does it? You know? I really did want it to kind of arrive, imitating the way it arrives in real life, kind of unannounced. 
And um, I was very, very tickled. And of course, I saved all the letters and I made some new friends from it. Yeah. I, I just wanted to add something, too, which is that w when I was writing about Jersey, I, I wasn't writing about Jersey City so much as I was using Jersey City to create a generic city of that sort of uh, cynicism and size and, and economic uh, stature. Um, I didn't call it Jersey City, and I don't know about the others. I mean, how, I mean, I, I think Maureen's book was was uh, embraced Bridge Bridgeport, you know, in in, in an unmistakable way. But um, you know, uh, for, for myself, I just I, I just picked Jersey City, you know, to use as 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 an example. But I mean, if the book it was not a, if the book didn't apply to anywhere but Jersey City, the dynamics that I was writing about, the dynamics of struggle, then it wouldn't have been a very successful book, I don't think. I just want to say to Richard that I agree with what he said about Jersey City. I started planning to get away from there when I was about nine. <laughs> it took a lot more years, but I still am very glad to be away from Jersey City. Yeah. Um, you're such a great audience. Like, do any of you have questions that you want to ask the panelists? If you do, um, could you ask at the microphone? <coughs> right behind you. Yes, please. No, you have to use the microphone. One quick question. Uh, I have two questions, but one quick question. Um, Maureen Howard, um, you mentioned Andre Breton, and you mentioned one other author that you said were, was an influence on you. Oh, well, I, when I was talking, uh, Luann asked me about American writers, you know, who had had an influence on me, and I suppose I'd gone through the business of, of Dreiser and um, uh, the, well, the New York of Willa Cather. I can go through a whole list of American writers. But then I did say Andre Breton's Paris, you know, the surrealists' Paris in their novels and in their writing is something that... Uh, I have found um, very important to me the idea and the way the way in which they um, find the city enchanting in a, in a somewhat decadent way, and you have to call yourself into account for finding things enchanting uh, and for wanting to turn the clock back. I have a great fear of nostalgia. I and the other question was I'm very intrigued by. Mr. Price's research techniques. Um, did you use a tape recorder? And were you ever in fear? You said you jumped in a car with a stranger or something no, like that? No, you know, I always had like a memo pad with me, but it was basically osmosis. I mean, the whole point of doing this research is I'm not a journalist, I'm not a documentarian, but I, I just felt for the type of fiction that I was doing, it was very important for me to understand the parameters of reality so I can start lying in a responsible way. I mean, I had to know. I mean, I just didn't know the base. I felt like a baby a lot of the times. I just didn't know how some people just made it through 24 hours in a housing project, even though I grew up in a housing project. It's just a different world. And it's like I just needed to start from scratch and just learn the most basic things. And once I had them, then I had to turn into an artist and create, you know, a fictional drama. No, I never. I would never read anything. I mean, for for cocaine research, I had my own addiction at <laughs> earlier, but I, I didn't. No, I purposely didn't read. There are no children here. There aren't, you know, any of those the promised land stuff like that. You know. 
I had a question for Doris Jean and Richard. Um, in the first half of the century, American cities were always like a destination, some place that people uh, came from someplace else to go to, whether it was from Europe or from, um, in the case of Chicago, like a lot of people, a lot of blacks from the South saw that as the promised land, someplace they went to. And in the second half of the century, it's more someplace to get away from. I mean, everybody's talking about leaving the city. And I wanted to know how this idea of migration enters into any of their writing. Um, Shall I? No. Uh, well, it does definitely have, have a play in my writing since I am trilogizing, good Lord. And the second book is, about, it is set in 1888, and the background of the characters is another time, and it's another generation of this family projecting backwards. Um, I do believe also that you've talked about the, the migration. I believe that those who migrated to the suburbs have found out what they've found out and are now coming back to the cities, if I'm not mistaken. Um, research shows that they are. So this, this is a, a natural occurrence with us, this uh, leaving the exodus and the return, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I, I found um, my book, the, the two, the, the thing between the, the people living in projects versus the cops, it, it was the dilemma of implosion in projects, where the, the issue is the inertia, where it's no more, you know, uh, so we talk about the promised land just before you did, you know, the whole notion of Mississippi to Chicago, and then let's get the hell out of here and go back to Mississippi, where it's probably better. But, I mean, these are basically, you know, like uh, apartments have imploded with four generations that can't go anywhere, being policed by policemen who, be, by virtue of the fact that they can police these people, live in the, out in the suburbs and go in, you know, so it's, and, and come into the projects like occupying armies, you know, but don't, this is not my Jersey City, this is not my Dempsey. This is, you know, I live, I live in my heart, my Dempsey doesn't belong, is, is no longer here, and these people killed it. And now I'm living in the suburbs because these people need, need zookeepers. You know, so it's that whole dynamic of who's stuck and who is able to get out. And uh, there's also, there was another dynamic too, which is the intimacy that arrives in stuckness uh, across the board, say between, you know, to use for one of, um, you know, more literary terms, the good guys and the bad guys. Because if you take a place like Jersey City, if you're 40 years old and you're living in Jersey City, or I imagine it's probably true for Bridgeport too, uh, or you know some other um, cities. Uh, the odds are you've always lived there. Nobody moves to Jersey City. You know what I mean? So if you're 40 years old and you're a policeman, and you're 40 years old and you're a drug dealer, the odds are you guys were always in Jersey City. You didn't go from Riverdale to Jersey City to be a drug dealer. Mm -hmm. you, were, you both went to Snyder High School together. You've known each other all your lives. You might even know the, the parents and now you're, you're on other sides of the law. And there's an intimacy that it's not, you know, it's like, hey, how you doing? I'm going to see the guy every day. If there's a warrant out for him, they'll probably send me to get him because he'll put up less of a fuss with me because I've known him for 20 years. And I've had to arrest him six times. And they, I know who he is, and he knows everything. You know, so there's a certain intimacy and stuckness that transcends mm -hmm. the traditional roles of occupations. You know? Thank you. There's an odd thing, if I may mention it, in Bridgeport, and one of the things that I, I became interested in, first of all, the Puerto Rican population of Bridgeport is very high, and it's because the, it's one of the first cities in America 
where um, huge numbers of people came for the war work. And uh, that's, that's one, there's always some wonderful history attached to this and uh, in, uh, into such facts. And there's also a population in Bridgeport of southern blacks who came from one town in the south. And it's, there was a lovely thing in the museum about these people. They are an extended family, and they came to work for one or two factories, and they called Bridgeport Sweetport because they were always sure of being employed. It's a very, a very kind of nice, sweet story that I'm afraid is in the past. When one of you mentioned the Margaret Haig Hospital, I suddenly realized that when I grew up in Brooklyn, the only thing I knew about Jer Jersey City was that there was a mayor named Haig who said, I am the law. And by a strange connection, he banned Norman Thomas from speaking in Jersey City and it might have been Jasper McLevy on another day. So there, there, there is a connection, but I wonder how this uh, background, we used to think of Jersey City as the place you passed on the way to the mountains. Uh, what, 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 else, what about the Hague uh, legacy? Well, I just know that, the, I used the Margaret Hague Hospital in my book too, and I, I just know that the reason it was built is because Hague promised FDR all the votes. And in exchange, he went to the hospital complex, which he went to the name after his sainted mother. And then he would make these 4 a.m. white glove tours of the hospital in the 30s and the 40s. And uh, that's one what the hospital was one of the best hospitals in the world. At this point, Margaret Haig Hospital is half abandoned. And uh, the junkies have been basically honeycombing it for, for scrap. And I sort of went with some people up and down. It's sort of like shopper's <coughs> paradise for salvage. and. Um, the other thing about Margaret Haig is that you can go, one of the places you go, you go, you go in there with a hangnail and you come out with, you know, hepatitis. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's one of those, de you know, dead man's curve type hospitals. I actually wanted to say something on the topic of people leaving. Uh, I know some people are returning to the city, but, but the statistics show that most people are leaving the city and that this is more and more a suburban country and less and less an urban country. Uh, certainly this will be, they say, the first presidential election which where the majority of people live in the suburbs. And the trend is only increasing, if not exactly accelerating. Um, and I think the question does arise uh, whether, whether writing about cities is something that is becoming obsolete, whether the novels are going to necessarily become more and more historical because fewer and fewer people live there that it's going to become uh, sort of a quaint thing the way, you know, writing about life on uh, a relatively simple farm now is a quaint thing people like to read about because it's so incredibly far from their experience. Um, I, I yeah, it's an interesting idea, yes. Uh, uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. Um, and I suppose in a sense that uh, thinking of, of the passing of our cities, it forces us. Uh, I wouldn't say that our material uh, is no longer viable, but I'd say that uh, it forces us to try and make what we do with our city, uh, our cities in fiction, some kind of vision of the past that is not nostalgic, that is not a tender looking back completely, 
but a facing up to the fact that those cities are still there. Bridgeport is still the largest city in Connecticut, and that we have got to find what Michael Harrington, um, the socialist, my late friend Michael Harrington said, is new models for all contending classes. Uh, we simply haven't done that. I would just like to go, and when we're talking about dealing with fiction, and I, I truly do believe that we are social scientists in that we reflect what we're going through, and that's what we will always be doing, reflecting what we are presently going through. Each exodus and return will be reflected just as it occurs, just as it does through my eyes, through your eyes. Um, <coughs> each of us will, I'm sure, have a uniquely researched vision that we're going, and some of them will be nostalgic, and some of them will be political, but they will be fiction. Well, that, that actually leads me to the other half of the question, which is it strikes me that one hears a, a lot about fiction also becoming obsolete as it tries, uh, I'd say, more and more fruitlessly to compete with uh, visual forms. TV, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, with the movies uh, and, and television, and, um, and with journalism as well, as represented by Tom Wolfe, uh, sort of uh, the Monfire of Vanities is a lot of fun, but it, 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 it struck a lot of people as not really being a novel. It struck it as people as being more or less journalism, you know, with, with made up characters. And it, it, um, it seems to me that, that there's sort of a double obsolescence here, perhaps, that we're facing with cities and fiction. I mean, you know, maybe 50 years from now, <laughs> neither of the things are going to be there to be discussed. And, um, I, I think that there is, because fiction writers are engaged in, I hope not a dying, but, but definitely a waning art or an art of, of waning popularity, um, I, I think that it's not accidental that, um, I don't feel it, it accidental for myself that I'm drawn to cities because I, I, I see cities as the same sort of, again, not nostalgic, um, they, they don't have a nostalgic hold over me, but they, they seem like they're trying to resist a homogenization and uh, um, you know a, a modernization, which I, in being a writer, I'm also trying to resist. They're 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 adhering to an older view of what people should be and how people should live. Um, and I don't think it's any accident that that well, this is becoming very tautological that we are here tonight to talking about cities and fiction. But. Um, I wanted to ask you, Richard. Uh, Taking up what um, Jonathan is saying, Gorvidal um, says that there's no such thing as a famous novelist anymore, um, that uh, uh, fame consists of people talking about and so on, and that this is really only happening with images on the screen. This is in his um, book of essays, Screening History, about movies. You could easily have, um, have done this as a, um, a screenplay. Why, why didn't you? Well, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm familiar with the process, and scre screenplays get made after all the people have to write the checks are made unnervous, you know, and you do that by taking out everything that's edgy or realistic or not happy. And I had a vision of race and class in the city that I just felt like if I was to make it as a screenplay, originally, um, I, you know, I couldn't live with myself because I knew what would happen to it. You know, they'd say, well, we have too many non-white people in here. There's too much drugs in here. There's no romance. There's not a happy ending. There's too much talking. You know, I said, well, look, let me, it's like Joe James Cain said about his books. 
You know, and I said, well, what do you think of what Hollywood did to your books? He said, well, they didn't do anything to my books. They're right up on the shelf. You know, so, I mean, and now that's, I mean, that's, I feel like no matter what happens with the film version of Clockers, the book Clockers will never be touched. I mean, you know, and I'll, I'm doing the script of Clockers, and the reason why I'm doing it is because why should somebody else get paid a lot of money to screw up my book when I can screw it up myself <laughs> and get the same amount of money? <laughs> you know, so. You've been waiting a while. Uh, I have a question that uh, might be a little off the track here, more of a technical question. You all deal <coughs> with fi fiction, but, but you've all expressed the fact that it has very deep seats in autobiography, your own uh, lives and your own experience. Uh, one of the problems in, that I have in writing, when I, when I know I'm writing about myself and my life, is that I have a terrible time with names. I, I just find myself unwilling to give up names that, that are real names, and I can't find adequate substitutes. Uh, I don't know how you deal with that. Can't you get that book, like, What to Name the Baby? <laughs> <laughs> you just sort of put a blindfold on it. The question's addressed to Jonathan Franzen, but uh, I wanted to pick up on an idea that Maureen Howard had mentioned about looking at the city as character. And I was intrigued by uh, St. Louis as a Midwestern, as a quintessential Midwestern city. And I wanted to know if you uh, had deliberately picked on the um, point of view of the city as seeing itself as number one competitor to the largest cities in the country and also um, bereft with this innocence of evil and uh, with East St. Louis hovering around it. But I wondered if you intended to describe St. Louis as a character with hubris and that uh, your experience in the uh, suburbs had, uh, had influenced you. I wrote, I, s I didn't start writing or even thinking about it until I'd left St. Louis permanently. Um, and I think that to the extent that the city did become a character, it was because I was writing from a distance of a thousand miles um, and I didn't have all that much familiarity uh, with the city itself and yet I, I knew it as a place I went to every Saturday morning to spend time in the, in the big library downtown and uh, I knew it from you know driving through and working summer jobs in. Um, and so because it was at such a distance, I was not, I, I feel that it could become a character because because it, it had reduced to such a few very strong, stark images of incredibly wide, empty streets um, on a Saturday afternoon. I mean, true, true deadness has not been experienced until you've been after, uh, you know, after hours in a, in a Midwestern downtown. Um, and it was images like that, that that I was with. And then and I, I think the anthropomorphization that occurs in making a thing into a character, I, th I think, was was aided in my case at least by the fact that it was so far away and it could become. Um, and that actually ties in with what I was saying in general that <clears throat> I like to know not very much because I think the imagination is is really where where the life and, and character comes from, um, and that happened in that case. I liked your description, Jonathan, of the downtown as a um, 
being like a meadow where only birds lived. Mm. Oh, that's, yeah, it's really weird. <laughs> uh, you go down there at six in the morning and, you know, all the parks are full of birds, but there aren't any people. There's no, you know, nobody lives there except the birds. Okay, one, two, and three, and then we'll... Can I say one can thing for one second? It just occurred to me that it is terrible, the fate of our cities. It's something we have to pay great attention to, but cities are fun, too, you know. You get to dress up. You don't do that in the suburbs. You get to be somebody who nobody else knows on the street. You get, you get there's an awful lot of uh, wonder uh, in street life that we shouldn't forget. And I, I know that it hasn't really been forgotten in, um, by the writers at this table. <laughs> yeah, this is a question for Richard Price. Um, about your writing process, when you were writing, I guess, with the cops in, the, in Jersey City, I was curious, how did, how did you gain entree in, into uh, both that, that world and then uh, more problematically the, you know, the world of the illicit and the illegal? And uh, well, I, it's, it's pretty easy. I mean, I started hanging out with these uh, police. I was doing research for the movie See a Love. And in this culture, I mean, if you are of Hollywood or from Hollywood, it's, it's like the only thing that's stronger than dope in this <laughs> culture is, is Hollywood. I mean, because not everybody's into dope, but everybody gets kind of goofy around Hollywood. I mean, not everybody, but, you know, a great number of people. And, you know, the cops are basically, you know, middle class people, and they're sort of fascinated by the fact that I knew or worked with movie people, whereas I'm looking at them and they, you know, have guns and say stop and, you know, take the guns out and tackle people and this, that, and the other, and they all got these, like, hair-raising war stories, and they said, well, what do you want to know about that for? Do you call him Bob, Bobby, or Mr. De Niro? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, <clears throat> and, you know, the whole notion, you're saying to these people, now, look, I did this movie, and, uh, yes, Sea Love was with Al Pacino, and now I am interested in you, you know, and they go, whoa, you know, what do you want to know? You know, <clears throat> you know, what can I buy? You know, it was very easy with that. Um, and as far as, you know, and, and the cops were much more taken with the movies than the books because books, uh, I mean, they all, you know, they all went to, you know, high school and, you know, in some cases college and, you know, books, you know, you know respect for books, but books didn't have the, the giddiness of Hollywood to them. Uh, now, with the drug, the way I started hanging out with the drug dealers is that basically I had to talk into the cops, tell them about what I wanted to do, and they said, well, you should, you should run with Rodney, I mean, and they punched up this guy on his beeper, and he came into the office, and that's what I'm saying, there's an intimacy, everybody knows everybody, and as long as somebody, there's not an all-points bulletin out for the son of a bitch, they see him every day since high school, and why not? Everybody owes everybody favors, that's how things work in the city on that level. A cop can't do his job unless somebody tells him who did it. Now, the cop's not, nobody's going to tell you who did it unless, you know, if you tell that guy, cop who did it, that cop will help you out with the beef that you're involved in because of something you did. It's favors for favors. There's a big favor bank. So I became a favor, you know, a human favor. And, but the ironic thing, let me just bring it now, but with the drug dealers and that whole sort of outrider kind of thing, they didn't really care about the movies. They weren't very taken with the movies because the only thing they liked was, you know, Jason and Freddie and Chucky. And, you know, they didn't give a damn about, you know, Paul Newman's angst and color money or anything like that. But the fact that I wrote books completely flipped them out because what well, one drug dealer said to me, um, and this is sort of stuff that so either, you, you, you know, you just have to learn to know, 
He said that uh, the most frightening thing to a young man selling drugs for me out on Martin Luther King Boulevard, he said, it's not AIDS, it's not jail, it's not guns, it's not death, it's words on a page. Because if he could handle words on a page, he'd be home doing his homework tonight instead of selling dope for me. He just surrendered. You know, not words on a page, like he sees like, a, like an eye chart and he freaks out. He's talking about the whole metaphor of like doing what's expected of you. I can't, I can't, I can't give up. Now here I'm walking in with this book. They all did the same thing. They take a look at the book. They look at the title. They look at my name. That's you? Yes. They open the book. They don't know if it's poetry, limericks, uh, you know, libretto, whatever. They turn to the last page and they announce the page number, 289. <laughs> what do you know for 289? You know, it's just, it's, I mean, so the police and the drug dealers had very separate, you know, things. But everybody was like, and now you want to talk about, you know, you want to learn about me. Well, you know. Hop on board. Um, I'd just like to pick up on the um, social scientist uh, aspect that Doris Jean was talking about and was wondering, uh, Richard and Doris Jean and, and, and everyone else, you spend so much time in doing the research for your work. Do you ever come up with answers to some of the problems that you see in the cities here? And, you know, we see politicians running through the city once every four years for various uh, reasons. And I was wondering, since you spend so much time doing the, the research, have you found any, uh, any answers to some of the, of the problems, the real problems that you saw in these cities? Uh, um, I can't say that I found any answers, but by looking hard at the question, by at the situations in our cities, and selectively to capture it in words and get it on a page. I hope to provoke better questions if I don't have the questions. I hope to pr provoke the public, the voting public's awareness of what's going on because, well, we're here talking about fiction tonight. I don't only write fiction. And, and I guess I do, I keep those worlds separate, but I write them the same. There is, um, there is the true picture that you want to point out when, when you're addressing a subject. If I'm talking about welfare and the impossible task a welfare mother has of trying to live and take care of children on the money that's offered and being penalized for going out to work. If everyone does not know that fact, then you write a popular novel in which all of a sudden, as in, we talk about reading is a dying art, electronic media is killing it. However, Terry McMillan just sold 585,000 copies, hardcover, of a book to an audience that had not been provoked to read because no one had bothered to write anything for them. Okay? That is a reading audience that we can cultivate. That is, Terry's books capture the reading woman, but they capture more. They capture people who have not been reading fiction. They capture people who have been looking at television. There are 585,000 readers now available to us who will write so that they too, because there, you can write to an audience and you can target an audience in a very exclusionary way and make damn sure that no one except your own peers will read it. Well, everybody doesn't read Toni Morrison. I do, but everyone doesn't. Everyone doesn't read 
the French and the Russian translations. I do, but everyone doesn't. So that, that deep sea of potential readers that's been neglected for so long are available to us. And those are the ones we want to hand the pictures of our cities and what's wrong because they're the ones who vote. And what we have gotten to in our cities is not going to be eliminated by another decade of novels and essays. It's just not. Um, I sit here, I tell you, and we all know it. We're a racist country. We will be a racist country until we are blown out of the sky, until the planet's blown away. We can make things better by making each other more aware and therefore less afraid, by not promoting so many lies, so much propaganda without rebuttal. Yes, there is no such thing as the truth. And let's get more, let's let down some of the walls so that there's room for more truth. Yours, mine, et cetera. Et cetera. Okay, one more. Um, I started thinking about this. Richard Price was saying that when uh, the policemen you were traveling with didn't think much of their own lives until you started eliciting and asking questions, and then they started thinking about what they were doing and looking at it differently. You're all Americans writing about American cities, um, but how do you feel about foreigners writing about, for instance, New York in a way the perspective might be different? And is there any, like Hemingway and Henry Miller's Paris will be different <laughs> than somebody who was writing at the same time. Um, specific to Richard Price, I read um, Ladies' Man, for instance, and there's a great deal that takes place in the Times Square sleaze area, and, and Martin Amos in Money, for instance, does the same sort of a place, but quite a bit differently. I just, this is sort of general about, about people from abroad writing about America and, and the kind of things that might. Well, I don't, I, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, you know, are, are you saying, is, is, is that a good or a bad thing? Um, I'm, maybe it's not really a very clearly thought out question. It's just about, about uh, and what, what might you bring to that, to a, uh, what might a foreign writer, for instance? Oh, fresh eyes. I mean, you know, no, no, no prior associations, no prior socializations. I mean, you can see things. I mean, I can walk into a room where two people have been fighting for 100 years, and I can say things in 10 minutes that I see that neither of them have, right. can see anymore, you know? Yeah, it's, it's indicative that the, the, the classic work on America was not written by an American. It's de Tocqueville or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Or, Hen or Henry Miller writing about Europe, you know, or, or coming back to America to write the air conditioned nightmare after being away. Sometimes the whole point of going away is so you can write about the place that you came from, too. It goes the other way around, too. I couldn't have written about the Bronx unless I had gone to California, you know, from college, because, I mean, why write about the Bronx if you live there? Christ. Yeah. It's insult well, to injury. You know, uh, to go back to Gertrude Stein, I love, there's a book that she wrote that I absolutely love. And, uh, she says, America is my country, Paris is my hometown. And Paris, uh, Paris, France is a terrific book and only, only the fresh observation of Gertie uh, and her residence there <coughs> could, have been, could have given us the French in that style. Okay, um, so uh, I'm just going to um, wind us up here with um, a sentence by Lewis Mumford. Perhaps the best definition of the city in its higher aspects is that it is a place designed to offer the widest facilities for significant conversation. Thank you all for your conversation tonight. Thank you for coming. Thank you.
Well, the first time I left Tokyo when I was five, I've been back. I have a, a friend, a lady friend, that lives in Washington County, Peggy Cooper.